I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to season five of And The Writer Is with your host, Ross Golan. Before I give my spiel, I want to acknowledge the music army that listens to this podcast every week. Since starting this, the And The Writer Is community has literally changed the history of the music business by helping pass the Music Modernization Act, gotten songwriters added to Album of the Year for the Grammys, and still is advocating for positive changes for our industry on a daily basis. So thank you and congrats. Now, as you know, I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour, when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So, this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with the great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. This episode is brought to you by Abco Music, a proud independent music publisher and advocate for the songwriter and artist community over six decades worldwide. Abco is home to iconic songs and writers of the 20th century, including Sam Cooke, Ray Davies, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Bobby Womack. And into the 21st century, with chart-breaking hits like Mariah Carey's We Belong Together, and more. Find out about Abco by visiting their website at www.abco.com. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. At BMI, music moves their world just like it moves mine. BMI is my performing rights organization. They're the bridge between people who create music, like me, and the businesses that bring it to the public. They make sure I get paid when my music is streamed on apps or shows, played on radio, at live shows, or in bars, gyms, basically anywhere where music is played. And they do this for over 900,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers with more than 14 million songs across genres. But it's more than that. They help us navigate the music industry. They create opportunities for aspiring writers and composers through stages at festivals, song camps, and workshops. And they connect us with the right people. They're also on Capitol Hill fighting for copyright protection and fair royalties. And they work hard to ensure the future of music. They have my back and they'll have yours. Learn more at BMI.com. 
Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan, today's epically legendary songwriter and artist and actor and entertainer, has written not just hits, but like the hits. He was one of the original teen heartthrobs at only 16 years old after releasing the Smash Diana and Put Your Head on My Shoulder before crafting defining evergreens like I did it my way for Frank Sinatra and she's a lady for Tom Jones. My way, by the way, has been covered by everyone, including Elvis and the Sex Pistols. I mean, this man toured with Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Chuck Berry. He wrote the Johnny Carson theme song. Da, 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 da. He's sold more than 60 million records worldwide and racked up over 150 million airplays. And that explains why he received the highest honor the Songwriter Hall of Fame gives the Johnny Mercer Award. Oh, and most of his songs were written all by himself or with one co writer. What an era and what an honor to have today's guest. And the writer is the Paul Anka. Wow, what an intro. I'm leaving. Exactly. And now that's it. You, you nailed all of them, right? Except the original title was Put Your Legs on My Shoulder. Oh, my God. Please <laughs> the, say that's true. Back in the 50s. You know, that, that wasn't going to work, but I was just a motivated teenager, you know. <laughs> I mean, hi, okay, so you're, you're from Ottawa. Canada, Ottawa. yeah. And, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of your story is, is um, uh, Wikipedia-able. But for those who, don't, who haven't read your book, literally, um, let's give a little background. So you're born in Ottawa. Born. Okay. Like everybody else. Two parents. Two parents, one, They're two. Im- <laughs> they were immigrants? No, they were born in Canada. Oh, they were born in Canada. <clears throat> yep. M- my wife is uh, Lebanese. I saw that you have Lebanese. Your wife is Lebanese? Yeah. I got Lebanese in me. I know. That's Where's why I'm wife? mentioning it. That's like, Where is she now? Oh, she's in the kitchen. You, you, not, you not just don't, don't like, change your ways, you Lebanese people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, Lebanese, um, that's, uh, I was kind of brought up uh, at a Greek church, actually, in Ottawa, Canada. But my parents were, uh, you know, old world, but great parents. And uh, it was a different life up in there until my life changed at, you know, 15 when I left home with some money in my pocket and got lucky in New York with Diana. But how did you, you know, I would imagine even now it would be difficult for an aspiring singer in Ottawa to be discovered in New York. Yes. How do you go from being, you know, are your parents musicians? No. Workers. So, so Sears Roebuck and my dad owned a restaurant. And you're absolutely right. It's a different business today, as we all know. So there's no equation between uh, me leaving at 15 with, you know, a few bucks in my pocket and very tenacious. Today, you just don't do it that way, obviously, in our business. But I had uh, the full support of my family. Uh, my mom was my big ally. My dad was, you know, you got to remember back then, pop music was in its infancy stage. And uh, nobody had anything to relate to in terms of, you know, there's eight shows up there and the voice and all the stuff that's out today. There's nothing to relate to. So they were kind of curious and and somewhat taken aback in that all I wanted to focus on was be this singer-songwriter at a time when it was unheard of. Who introduced you to that concept? Well, I was a fan, first of all. I mean, I started singing uh, everybody that was around, rhythm and blues, 
uh, listened to a lot of the, you know, In the Still of the Night was one of my first records, Earth Angel. Then being a Canadian, we had all the Canadian groups that would cover all the black music. So thus you'd have the Four Lads and you'd have the Rover Boys and the Aces and there's all of these white acts that were doing all the black music. Thus you'd have Pat Boone doing Little Richard, et cetera, et cetera. So I got smitten by the music business just listening to all of that music and uh, starting to take lessons from a woman around the corner, uh, Mrs. Reese, and, um, you know, looking at it and going, well, you know, I'm too young, nobody's going to listen to me, so I better start writing for myself. But they were inspiring to me, you know, the groups, the R&B stuff. How did you record your first music? Uh, A lot of it I wrote on paper, and some I went to a tape machine. What's your uh, instrument outside of... Like, what do you write on? I write uh, on inspiration. I write on a piano and a guitar. <laughs> so when you're writing out these chords and you're writing out, you're actually doing the notation. Yeah. This is, at that point, mid-1950s, right? Well, I started writing in 1955, 54, 55. I'd taken some classical music you know, by a choir teacher. So I knew how to put the notes down and write the chords. And 55, um, yeah, we had tape machines that we could put some of the stuff on. Uh, what's the first song you wrote? Was it Diana? No. First song I wrote, I came out here to Los Angeles and I was given two book reports to read. Uh, one was called Prester John, uh, written by our ex-governor general, John Buchan. And there was a town in there called Blah Wild the Beast Fontaine. And I was so fascinated by this town in Africa, Blah Wild the Fontaine. So I came out here to visit an uncle, and I used to go down to Wallach City, uh, which was the music store down on the corner of Vine and Sunset. And the record at the time was called Stranded in the Jungle by the Cadets. And I loved that record. <clears throat> and in that interim period, I started writing this song, Blah Wild the Fontaine, Blah Wild the Fontaine, where love is so splendor and no one could remember. And midnight night, so I had this song when I was 14. And then I was parking cars and selling candy over at this La Cienica Theater where my uncle worked. And uh, I said to my uncle, I said, you know, can you drive me over to Culver City? There's a, there's a record company called RPM Records owned by the Bahari Brothers. And uh, I, got, I want to sing my song. He said, you crazy? I said, no, I got nothing to do. I'm vacationing. And I want to go over there. So he, he, he drove me over and he waited in the parking lot. And I walked in and there was his two brothers and the sister. And they're sitting at the front desk. And you saw, you know, their big hit was this uh, Stranded in the Jungle Cadets. And the guy looked, he said, what do you want? I said, I got a song I want to sing for you. He says, how old are you, kid? I said, 14. <clears throat> he said, you got a song? So I think they had nothing to do, really. They just had one hit. They sat around worrying about where they'd be in business a few months later. So he said, okay, sing the song. So I stood in front of him and I started, blah, wild, the beast one day, blah, wild, our love is so splendid. And they were like in shock. I could see the jaws drop. <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> So now the guy's checking me out. He said, where's your parents? I said, they're in Canada. He said, but my uncle's outside. He said, yeah, you know what? We'd, we'd like to record you, right? So I bring my uncle in. And he, he says, what's up? And they said, we want to record your, your nephew. He said, you're kidding. So fade out, fade in. About a week later, I go back, and in the garage in the back of the place, uh, these guys walk in, the cadets that had a number one record in the country, stranded in the jungle. And the guy, Barry, says, say hello to the cadets. That's your I said, yeah. He says, they're going to sing with you. 
So now I start, we go in, Ernie Freeman was the arranger, he was just starting out, who later went on to do massive hits, and we rehearsed, and we did Blah Wild to be smoked over love. So that was my first record. I was a failure at 14, it came out, but I'm going to Chicago and Buffalo meeting these disc jockeys, and that was my first song, came out, I don't know, maybe we sold, what, 500 records, but that was my first song. Did they, did you sign a contract? Yeah, I signed something. So how did they not have you for the next, you know, I mean... They didn't want me. <laughs> oh, so they so After, they tried it. They were, were like, kidding? oh, this is it. So let's let they it go. They thought it was going to be huge. The thing was stiff record. For, and kids weren't making it back then. You right. Know, it was unheard of. What did your parents think when your uncle calls and is like, uh, now he's going to be traveling to Buffalo and all over the place? They and, were uh, happy for me because I was very tenacious for a good year and a half before that. <clears throat> I had a group called the Bobby Soxers. We would just travel around town, sing at proms. So they knew I had it in me and they knew that they weren't going to sway me and they knew that I was just going to, I was totally focused on my goal. So they were very happy and they said, yeah, go do it and you're going back to school at the end of the summer, which is what happened. Right. I went back to school. How was it going back to high school after... Were you the coolest kid in school, or were they just were kids like they? In did the song come out in Canada? Oh yeah, it came out and went. It went, got some play. But I mean, it was if a, a song, I like yeah, if a cool. song comes out and you go back to high school and you've just released a song, I imagine yeah, you're cool. the coolest kid. Very very cool. Yeah, everyone was very you know wow you know it was like small town, and um, it didn't you know take off the way. I Thought it would, of course, but it set me up for Diana. Yeah. Sure, but everybody was very cool about it. Yeah, who's Diana? Diana was a girl that um, I would see at church uh, in the choir, and then I would kind of knew each other socially. But she was like three or four years older than I was, and back in the fifties, you know, the whole vibe was you know if you're shorter, if you're younger, and if you're uh, you know, guys should be older than girls. I mean, the, the restrictions and the parameters were different. And she knew I liked her, but she wanted nothing to do with me. You know, girls historically have been always much cooler and hipper and mature than us, you know, even today. I look at my 14-year-old son and the 13-year-olds are going on 21. So back then, she wanted nothing to do with me. And um, I got really motivated. We weren't swapping spit or anything because I was just out of her realm, you know. <laughs> so I, I, I sat down and I wrote this song, you know, Diana. And uh, I played at parties and I'm banging away and kids were digging it. And that was about it until I had about two more songs and left for New York. But Diana at that point was just totally an inspiration. What did she think of the song? She thought it was cute. Uh. They should look at it and listen. What did they think back then? You know, sure. There's nothing to relate to. But that had the one semi, real semi hit, blah, wild beast, yeah, right. so I made this left turn, right? So she, uh, she thought it was sweet, and this, you know, young guy was writing something for me. But uh, and that was about it, you know. I mean, she, she didn't really spin until I got back. I was, I was traveling all over the world, number one record. Yeah, came right. home, been to France, everywhere else, had a big taste of it. And I kind of looked at her, and it was over. I mean, I was just, hey, <laughs> nothing happened here. Let me get back to France, Bridget Bardot, you know, bring them on. Yeah, Japan, exactly. I mean, it was a whole new world for me. So yeah. you get to New York, yeah, and now it really, like, it unfolds really quick. Big time. Life changer. Yeah. Those first three, four songs that come out are all mm. just 
kind of just massive. What does a 16 year old do with being the biggest artist in the country? I mean, how do you how do you deal with going from I'm in a I mean Ottawa's not small, but it's it was not smaller than 200,000 people. It even just doesn't compete with you. You can't explain what that's like to right. be the biggest artist in the country, and probably, I guess, the world. You know, nineteen fifty six through yeah, fifty nine. It's just world, yeah. huge. Yeah. How do you communicate with people? How do you learn how to be a human in that environment? Like, so those are such those years are yeah. so important in the growth of a well, person. You have to realize that uh, when I went down to New York, I'd been there prior to that. I won a contest collecting soup wrappers, so I needed to get close to New York and get a vibe. So <clears throat> there was a contest for IJ food stores, and whoever collected the most Campbell soup wrappers won a, won the contest in each district. And you went to New York, so I went and got a job packing the the uh, groceries at IGA, and I'd clock all the women buying Campbell's soup. But, but anyway, I went, and I go down, and I'm in the YMCA, and I'm looking at these buildings in New York. I'm going, shit, i got to get back here with my user. I've never seen anything like, we never saw anything like that back in Canada. Anyway, so I get the vibe, and I'm listening to Alan Freed and blah, 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 and I go back home. When I go down at Easter and Don Costa, you know, Success has many fathers, and you know if you don't have that team effort in life, in anything, even today, you're just not gonna you hit a wall. So once I landed in New York, Costa hears me again, call the parents, fly them down, they sign me up, they give me a hundred bucks, and I'm now working for ABC Paramount. But my life totally changed when that happened to me. So it was really, I realized that even with all that success. You know that every one of us are not born sophisticated. Now, if you're given that gift, and success comes to you, you're you're in there just kind of fighting for your life to keep focused, stay straight. And the big thing that hit me, I, was, I kept saying, but how do I not become an asshole? Because everybody all of a sudden is catering to me, and this, and they're kissing my ass, and they're, what can we get you? And I'm in this this small town kid is now in the big leagues with people twice my age. So my whole thing was to try and. Just deal with it the best that I could. Um, it was a huge change of life, you know, to go from the life that I knew into dealing with people that I didn't know why they wanted to know me, who I was meeting, uh, meeting people I never dreamt I was going to meet. I was still a fan of all the artists that I wound up working for back that working with at the New York Paramount, you know, Chuck Berry, Fats Domino, guys I listened to. I, all of a sudden I was on the same bill with these guys. So you had to really get the right people around you. And I got very lucky with a guy named Irving Feld and Izzy Feld. And uh, they own drugstores down in Washington, but they were the promoters of all these rock shows that I was on. And they really mentored me and became my partners. So they, your peers at that time, and I was actually thinking about this, where you know where we're at now, because mm-hmm. you were so young when you came in that all those all those artists that are that were in their thirties. And most of them were in their late twenties, thirties, forties that you were touring with. It feels like, right? Or yeah, maybe 20s, not. There so twenties, there, there were some, but it seemed like you, you know, there aren't a lot of people that share your story right now that that mm. like can relate to being to breaking in the business when television was new. Right to breaking the business when it was like the first time people could mass like support an artist, mm. and really when you come out, it's 
it's like Elvis and you, and there's like a handful of guys that can relate to the the public pressure. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine, you know, it's sort of like a video going viral now, but mm-hmm. on speed because in the history of humanity, no one saw artists the way that they saw you guys. Right. Exactly. Um, when they did put you on TV, were you getting? Nervous or were you excited by it? And did you have any idea what was happening? All those performances that you started doing, you know, mm. where it's there are two channels that people can tune into in their home. So everyone's watching you. It's not like they didn't have other options. They all uh, watched correct. you. Correct. Well stated. Did you know what was going on? <laughs> yeah, I did in the sense that TV started at five o'clock in Ottawa. And every Sunday we watched Ed Sullivan. Uh, American Bandstand hadn't started. It was very much, um, very frightening to me that, you know, after seeing artists on Ed Sullivan and realizing that <clears throat> the business was really small to just a few record labels. Um, I mean, jumping ahead a bit, even when I met the Beatles, nobody heard them over here. It was my agents, Normie Weiss and Bernstein, that went and brought them over here. So we were in this... Very small community, if you will, of artists. But it was frightening to me that all of a sudden you were totally in the spotlight. The record comes out, hits number one, and now you're going on Ed Sullivan. Now, this was a guy that I would sit home and watch, and all of a sudden I'm on the show, scared to death. I did everything to keep it together to just, you know, get across what I had to knowing that I went from a studio band and a certain sonic and a record, and now I'm playing with this big orchestra with all these old musicians. So that was concerning, because I couldn't really emulate the record. So all of that came to play to where you were, um, <clears throat> you didn't have the mileage. Even though I had sung prior to that, what I realized then was, even though all this was happening to me, I needed to get some mileage under my feet to really find out who I was and what I was doing, and realized later, a few years later, that... Most artists need that mileage to find out who they are yeah. to get the experience. But it was frightening. It was um, very concerning in that I didn't really know what I was doing all the time as a performer. and I had the wherewithal or the tools to really own it. Like I learned a few years later when I started working with the Rat Pack in Vegas. So all of that came to play in terms of everything coming at you from the morning, the day you you got out of bed to doing a show that night and trying to keep it together, just trying to keep yourself together and feed off of whatever the reaction was. Reaction being that most parents, you know, of our fans didn't like us. They didn't like Presley, they didn't like me, they didn't like, you know, they didn't know what this music was. So we were these pioneer of musicians and singers on a bus, nowhere else, and traveling throughout the United States. But, you know, we had a lot of controversy attached to it. And we were scared to death. You know, we were trying to make the best of it. But it was, you know, in some cases, the only white kid on a bus. So I'm traveling down south, and I'm witnessing all the shit that went on down there. And I'm getting off a bus to get my friend's food. And then they go to a separate bathroom. And this is all hitting me. Right, and I'm realizing how fucked up a little bit it is, you know. And I'm going, "What's going on here? Why are they doing this?" So, with all that kind of pressure, and <clears throat> being in the middle of it, you're just listening to, you know. My father always said, "Just, you know, try not to be the smartest guy in the room all the time." So I had people around me that knew better and were, you know, older and wiser. And uh, with that kind of input, it was just tough trying to keep it together. Who introduced you to the idea of writing for other people? 
Well, I, it was kind of my thing because from the moment I started writing, um, it, I kind of felt that I don't know how long this is really going to last because everybody was always telling me that, that this may not last. So, you know, behave yourself. And, you know, and historically, all the guys that I listened to, some of them went by the wayside other than maybe Chuck Berry and, you know, Fats and guys like that that I knew. But primarily, I, I said, look, I'm the writer. I wasn't sold as a pretty boy out of Philadelphia. I was not a good-looking kid and... You know, they were trying to make the best out of me that they could. And they <laughs> do this with your hair and wear this. I don't know, whatever. But I was I was a writer. My whole gravitas was the writer. Where the other kids I hung out with weren't writers. You know, from Philly, they weren't writers. It was written for them. So I was the only one writing. So my whole foundation for me was, you're a writer first. That's what got you here. And yes, this may not last. Because my voice hadn't changed yet. I was still up in, like, dog country. And my first you know, real commitment to that was Buddy Holly, who, you know, was my friend. Uh, we started out not friends because, you know, all the guys I traveled with, Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy, and they, they didn't like me because I was this young kid, you know, getting more money, 200 bucks a week, and uh, billed higher than they were. So they really did the whole thing that kids do, you know, mean. So these guys were down on me, and Buddy wasn't happy with me because I knocked him out of that'll be the day. But when we started getting on the road, I realized what a great guy he was, how talented he was, how influential he was, because I went to England right away, and, you know, everyone over there was copying him and Chuck and what have you. And he became my friend. So when we traveled uh, on the buses together, he gave me a guitar and he taught me some chords. And he said, I want, to, I want to do what you're doing. I'm having a fight with my manager and, you know, I need the money and uh, I want you to write for me. So he taught me a few chords on the guitar. And um, I wrote uh, It Doesn't Matter Anymore for him, which turned out, unfortunately, to be the last song he recorded. And we came here to New York and... In the studio, we sat with Dick Jacobs, and I played the song. We came up with the string arrangement, and he was my first. He was the real first artist that I wanted to write for. Thus, when it came out, and we put him on that big tour out there, Irving and I, and unfortunately, you know, the plane went down because he shouldn't have gone up in it because he was taking pilot lessons. But Buddy was and I were going to open a music company. So when I had the success with him, I realized that, you know, I wanted to write for others because with just looking at the numbers and life's about numbers and eventually money, um, you're never going to always have a chart record. So it started with Buddy and then it went to Connie Francis and I went from there and just giving stuff away right up to the turning point of writing my way for Sinatra. Um, going back to Buddy Holly real quick, you know, I had assumed at that point when you almost everything had gone your way. But you put out the, the the next few songs, you become as big as you, you got and you, you're on tours with people that you listened to growing up. Um, when Buddy died, how did that affect your outlook on your future? Well, it affected unilaterally all of us that were friends of his emotionally and we were totally shocked. But in terms of my future... Um, I'd lost a friend. Uh, I'd lost somebody that was part of my future because we were going to open a music company. Uh, but other than that, you know, it was just inspiring to continue to go ahead. But it didn't derail me in terms of my artistic goals. It was just a terrible life lesson. Uh, 
and of somebody that I, that I really loved that was a good friend of mine and took a long time to get over it. What was, uh, what was that company going to be called? I don't know. I don't know what the name was. We were going to start a publishing and records and what have you, and uh, I don't even know that we got to what it was going to be called other than we were going to do it. Did you ever end up starting a record company? Yeah. Publishing company? Which company was that? Well, I started with uh, ABC Paramount, uh, you know, who signed right. me up right away. Right. And I started to, after a couple of years, I, you know, I started to get the feeling that, you know, they shouldn't be getting that and doing this, that, and the other. And in the late 60s, um, or maybe a touch earlier, I started a company called Spanka and Flanka Music, uh, only because I felt, you know, what were they doing for me? And it was my life. And uh, ultimately, I said, look, I got $250,000 in the bank. And I, I want my rights back. I want my masters. You know, I, I'm going to publish my own stuff. And they were kind of happy to do it because they didn't really believe there was going to be a future with me. Huh. You know? So um, I went to RCA Victor. And uh, I went there because, you know, up until I signed with uh, RCA Victor, I was traveling all over the world. And everywhere I went, you know, our business even today in a form is about marketing and distribution. Uh, I never saw... ABC anywhere. I'd go in a hardware store, I'd go in a store in southern Italy, and I'd see RCA washing machines and toasters and then records. I said, these guys, they got it all covered. So I, so I said to, uh, with Irving, I said, let's go to RCA. We own everything. And that's when I started a record production company, Cami with RCA Victor. And then I moved to Italy and started recording there and then won this big festival and sold you know, four million records of this song, became the first million seller in Italy. And I tipped off Ray Charles when he left Atlanta and came over to ABC when I was winding up over there. I said, get your masters, man, own your yeah. own stuff. And that was the turning point for him. He started owning his masters when he started at ABC when I was there. Explain the how you end up with the Rat Pack in how you meet those guys and how that relationship started? Well, in the 50s, you know, at 16, 17, 18, me, Bobby Darren, Frank Avalon, you know, we were kind of trucking along, but, you know, we knew that we had to change and do something different. And Darren and I used to just talk about, you know, we got to swing, man. We got to be like those cool guys in Vegas. Because Vegas was the big entertainment capital and for everything. And our industry back then, you know, the mafia ran everything. I was, you worked for them, record companies, they're behind the publishing, they're behind the jukebox, they had all the clubs. You know, that was part of Americana that you really realized early in life. You keep your nose clean, but that's who you're working for ultimately. So we realized that, um, Bobby and I, that we had to, you know, get that whole vibe from Vegas, do swing albums, what have you. And my one of my first albums was called Swings for Young Lovers with a big band. So I was swinging at, what, 17, 18? And then, of course, Bobby, you know, he did Mac the Knife with our friend Richard Weiss and uh, Wes. And we wanted to be like the Rat Pack. Okay, so that's our goal, that's our focus, and how do we do that? So I'm doing all my little kid songs and what have you, but I'm starting to you know, grow out of it, and I'm very concerned on I can't be doing puppy love you know, all my life, and it's, I started to kind of poo-poo it, but then I got smart and said, give them what they want. So how do I incorporate that and really become a performer? So we started at the Copacabana in New York, which was the place, the mob-owned club, and if you made it there, then it would spread. So 
they took a chance with me and I became, you know, not only the youngest in Vegas, but the youngest to work the Copacabana. And we're selling the place out and I put together this whole act, you know, with big band and swing and special material until a few years ago, my one claim to fame was the fact that my name rhymed with Sanka and <laughs> I'm a do-it-yourself type song, man, I'm a do-it-yourself. So I did all that kind of shit to, to really endear to everybody that I was going to be like those guys, right? So anyway, I start at the Copa and then I start in the clubs, but I still need to get to Vegas. So I get a call, and it was from the guys in Vegas, and uh, I fly out and I meet with them. And uh, they said, uh, you know, we'd like you to work out in Vegas. And they first put me with Sophie Tucker. Now, most people don't know who Sophie Tucker is, but she was this great grand dame of our industry, big, you know, imposing woman. And said, these days you're going to miss me, honey. So they fly me out to meet her because they want to break me in at the Sahara opening for her, right? But my goal is still Vegas. We got to be like those guys. So you got to remember, rock hasn't hit. There's no Beatles. There's no Hendrix. Everybody's locked in this zone, right? Yeah. Vegas is it. So, and I need to give you this background just so you'll no, see the way perfect. that we whirl into it. So I open with Sophie, and for the first time, all these parents are bringing kids into a showroom. And the place is like kids screaming and yelling and all that shit going on. And she says, my boy, I'm going to open for you tomorrow night. I can't follow that. So now I'm a big hit. Then we go over to the Sands Hotel, like uh, maybe early 60s, and I'd gone to see all those guys work you know, in the late 50s. Anyway, we sign up to work the Sands Hotel. I'm meeting Sinatra, I'm meeting Sammy Davis, Dean Martin. And the moment they sign me to work the Sands with them, that's when I'm one of the guys. Now, granted, I'm a kid, they're twice my age, but I'm in there. I'm in a health club, all the girls and all this shit that went on. I said, who do I give the money back to? This is unbelievable. I'm hanging with these guys. It was like, flip the page, there I was. So that was the first time. And from that day on... Did they all treat you yeah. well? well? They treated me well because, okay, did they like the music and where I came from in Presley? They hated it because they were doing the songbook. But, you know, we all worked for the mob. So when the mob was making money with whomever and it came down from whomever to them, he's making money, just be good to the kid. So my nickname was The Kid. Frank would call me The Kid because I was, what, 20? They're like way up there. And, uh, yeah, they treated me well, and I was The Kid. You know, It really, it kind of maximized after my way, then all of a sudden, because I was 25 when I wrote that. That's when I really got real cred from them in terms of, wow. How did you present that song, and who did you present it to? Well, the history of my way, and it's 50 years actually, this year, um, I got married in Paris um, in the early 60s, and I loved France and the culture, and I was traveling all over the world. And I had a home that I'd rent down in the south of France, and my wife was top model back then, but she was working through Europe and the United States. And we'd go down to this little town called Mougins, and I was sitting around one day, and I heard this record on the radio, French record, and it was called Comme d'habitude. 
And it was, you know, typical French song, you know, very graphic. If you understand the French language with, you know, Aznavour and those guys, it's poetry when you hear it in French, unlike what we can do, really. So it was, you know, the married couple and we're not getting along, but I love your armpit and it smells and the blue. <laughs> I mean, all the shit that, you know, they, that they, Jacques Brel, that they can only write. But there was something in the melody that I liked. And I was a music guy. You know, I started my publishing company and I had James Brown catalog back then. And I was always, my ears were always open to whatever. And I hear this melody. I fly to France, I uh, fly to Paris, and it was a small community of people. And the, the guy back then was Eddie Barkley. And he ran the mob in France. <laughs> they caught on from us Americans. So now you had the French mob and the Corsicans. So they had and this so company. you're spoken for, so you're like cool with him because he's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 you're covered. Yeah, I'm covered. So <laughs> long and the short is I sit down, I said, uh, I want that song. He said, yeah, whatever you want, Paul, what do we do for you? I said, and we weren't, we weren't buying the pyramids. I mean, it was like the song, right? So the guy, we drew up a contract and I owned it. So fade out, fade in. I come back to New York and uh, it's just hanging around. In the meantime, I'm doing my gigs and I'm working now down in Florida. The mob owned the Fountain Blue and we're all working there, Sinatra and everybody. So I go down there and uh, Sinatra is doing a movie. And he called me up and said, hey, kid. He said, uh, come and have dinner with me after your show. You know, when he calls, you take your passport because you never know what country you're going to wind up. You'll get on his plane and you're in Mexico. So I go to dinner. And uh, we're sitting there, and he was with this young actress, Mia Farrell at the time, right? Meanwhile, he's like, what, 50? And we're having dinner, and he said, I'm quitting show business. I'm going to retire. I had enough. Rat Pack's over, getting hassled. You know, because the FBI, they were all over him because of his supposed connection. So he'd walk in his room, and they'd be drilling new holes to put the phone in to stay one step ahead. So he's just tired of it all. And... Um, he said, I'm quitting, but I'm doing one more album with Costa. Now, Costa was my guy who found right. me, and I introduced him to Sinatra. And that great album, sidetracking here, of Sinatra and Strings are one of the best ever. So Don started recording him, and Don was going to do this last album. And he said, you never wrote me a song, because you always tease me. You're going to write something for me, but I never had the balls to sing anything that I was writing then. So uh, I go come back to New York. I'm in my apartment. And it's hitting me, Sinatra quitting show business. And couldn't believe it. None of us could believe what was going to happen. This is like Frank Sinatra. So I take the French song, and I'd already started it on piano and got a different vibe, and it was just laying around waiting for its moment, you know, what it's like, waiting for that thunderbolt. And I sit there, and at those, those days I was um, typing everything out because I was... Uh, Worked at a local newspaper when I was a kid because my dad wanted me to be a journalist. So I, I did everything typing. And I'm sitting at the typewriter and, uh, and I had the melody. And I said, what would Frank do? How would he write these lyrics if he were writing this? So I started metaphorically in a sense of, and now the end is near, retiring. And I started using all the kind of jargon that, you know, ate it up, spit it out. I mean, shit that he, the way he talked. Yeah. He was eloquent and, you know, self-taught, but there was that rough side of him. And it was like, I've never had a writing experience quite like that, other than The Longest Day for the film. But it started to, like, write itself. And it was just, like, he, him writing it. So, in answer to your question, I finish it in five hours. 
a huge thunderstorm outside, blah, 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 blah. And I called him in Vegas. He was at Caesar's Palace. I said, sir, I got something that you might like. He said, bring it out. So I fly out with a demo. And I go out and uh, I present the song to him. I sing it. Had a demo so he could walk with it. And uh, he looked at me. He said, kid, I'm going to do it. Two months later, I get a phone call. I'm in New York. He was with Costa in a studio in L.A., uh, Western or Sunset Sound, I don't know which one. And he said, kid, listen to this. And he took the phone he put up to a speaker. And I heard my way for the first time. I started to cry. Because hmm. I knew it was going to take me to a whole other level, that song, from yeah. everything that I'd written. And that's the My Way story. I like it. You can tell it again. Um, but, um, <laughs> okay, so that's way. all, I mean, you know, that's the end of the 60s. And what's interesting about the songwriting profession is that where you started in the 50s and in the early 60s there's there are a lot of artists who will take outside songs even if you were the artist in the 50s correct but once the beatles come in and bob dylan comes in all of a sudden labels are looking for well does this person write their own music correct. you know so to have a hit like my way in 1969 is really interesting timing wise cuz they're just they're those kinds of hits were not popping through. Correct. We're not becoming, you know, evergreens at that point. That Correct. that's of a of a of a different era. So amazing to have done that. And not to go back, but just to talk about because you mentioned it, you know, working in for TV themes, film themes, after your nineteen fifties run, you end up writing a theme for uh, one of the, you know, most popular movies of nineteen sixty two, I believe. Mm-hmm. You know, and then to also have uh, the Johnny Carson theme at the same time, did it make you question whether you should be writing specifically for film or TV? No, it just, all of my focus part of that was to really learn my craft Mm -hmm. because I I really didn't have a, a full capacity of diversity of writing, you know, all of a sudden getting inspired the longest day and what have you. It was all part of my goal to um, learn as much as I could from the greats, Sammy Kahn, all the guys that I would hang out with or know, to really know my craft and how to write for different situations. So it was never uh, my feeling that, you know, I'm just going to write. It was only that if this didn't go anywhere as an artist and all that failed, I was always the writer. And if I don't establish myself with the gravitas of being the writer, which was a great thing to fall back on, um, then I'd have nothing. And I was prepared to go back to Canada and bye. But what happened was it really gave me chops to to sit down and get away from, you know, the strongest emotion is love. And if you write about it in any way, it's going to hit with somebody. But it helped me diversify to uh, say, yeah, let me, you know, let me, let me see if I can get this done with Zanuck, The Longest Day, because this was a film that I was an actor in, but there was going to be no music. Because when I was over there and we are shooting the film... So uh, the, the, real quick, The Longest yeah. Day is about D-Day, yeah. Normandy. Mm-hmm. You know, f- for those who don't know it, it's... you know The uh, classic it's, Yeah, it's a classic film, Academy Award winning, mm-hmm. 
Many I was nominations. nominated. I wasn't going to win because I was too young. They, they looked at this kid again, right? But it was a huge. I mean, huge you film. were probably twenty during twenty twenty one. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, so I, I just um, I liked the vibe of it. You know, being diversified, and they kind of looked at me different. You know, you're you're constantly, and even today, you're as good as your last hit. You know, it's it's they're dead in our industry. It's a total bullshit business, and the crowd you have to deal with every day because you're just as good as your last hit and. They don't care. So as I, you know, kind of embellished, if you will, that I could do something like that, I was always alive. I was always, you know, relevant where all my friends all of a sudden disappeared. Nobody cared. They didn't make the transitions. And even when I first met the Beatles in Paris where I was working, you know, you know, they'd say, oh, we want to do what you're doing, publish and write and produce and all that. And we hope to come to America one day because nobody knew them. It wasn't a media-driven society as today. It's like a blank. You know, back then, I'd come home with Beatle records and I'd play it for my friends and people. they go, what the fuck is a Beatle? What do you mean Beatle? You know, these guys in England, blah. I said, they're amazing. They said, yeah. And they wound up some little label out of Chicago, Chess Records. So I finally, Normie Weiss, who was my agent back then, you know, I said, Normie, you got to check this out. It's unbelievable. They flew over, brought them over. And apropos to what you said, when the Beatles hit, what it did was open the door from where we were to where we were now accepted in Madison Avenue, adults, uh, you know, everyone in the media started to say, wait a minute, there's something to all this music? Well, you know how they changed everything. So I was happy to see the Beatles hit. I was happy. And then even though it wiped a lot of us off the radio, I stayed relevant with that. My writing side, to go back to your question, it kind of helped me stay in the pocket and in the ballpark, you know, and that's primarily why I went to uh, Italy because I found out from traveling there was a world out there and I knew that one day it would be a global society. I'd be in Japan, I'd be in France. I was writing for all French people, for Italians. You know, it hits a hit. How often were you writing? You know, when you first start, you're living and breathing rock and roll. Yeah. It's like almost every day. That's what you do. You had to crank out three albums a year. You had assignments to do. So you're almost in the middle of it, living, breathing for at least... Two, three, four years. Every day. Every day. You know, it wasn't where you had a three-month block. You just kept writing. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Abco Music, a proud independent music publisher and advocate for the songwriter and artist community over six decades worldwide. Abco is home to iconic songs and writers of the 20th century, including Sam Cooke, Ray Davies, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Bobby Womack and into the 21st century with chart-breaking hits like Mariah Carey's We Belong Together and more. Find out about ABCO by visiting their website at www.abco.com. This week's episode is sponsored by BMI. At BMI, music moves their world just like it moves mine. BMI is my performing rights organization. They're the bridge between people who create music, like me, and the businesses that bring it to the public. They make sure I get paid when my music is streamed on apps or shows, played on radio, at live shows, or in bars, gyms, basically anywhere where music is played. And they do this for over 900,000 songwriters, composers, and music publishers with more than 14 million songs across genres. But it's more than that. 
They help us navigate the music industry. They create opportunities for aspiring writers and composers through stages at festivals, song camps, and workshops. And they connect us with the right people. They're also on Capitol Hill fighting for copyright protection and fair royalties. And they work hard to ensure the future of music. They have my back and they'll have yours. Learn more at BMI.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fast forward, you know, my way is huge. But so she's a lady, which really sort of defines Tom Jones, at least for me, like when I think of like the quintessential song. Did you ever want to keep that song? Like My Way makes sense for, for Frank Sinatra. That sounds like Frank Sinatra. Right. But right. She's a Lady sounds like you could have released that too. Like who, how did that song get to him? And I'm in the business. I'm really running a business at that point. And My Way... You know, kind of everybody was, you know, okay, this, this cat can write, you know. So I always looked at it as the hat of a writer, hat as an artist. Could I do it as well as if I got somebody else to do it? So what happened with that was I met Tom Jones and his manager and because uh, we were with the same agency. And we got very close. And um, they invited me over to uh, do this TV show. In England, he had a show over there. And in all of that, they said, you, you got to write something for Tom, you know, because everybody was, you know, stupidly, could we get another My Way? There is no other My Way. He just doesn't say, I don't write that kind of song, you know. That never changes. I yeah, mean, that's exactly. the music industry. Yeah. You write one song, yeah, everyone yeah, wants that right, song. Right. Yeah. So I said, okay, let me think about it. So I watched what was going on. It was a whole, it was a whole sexuality is what his whole thing was. Plus, he had a great voice. Still does. And uh, I kind of looked at it and went, okay, women, uh, you know, the vibe, I knew, you know, where to put it in the pocket for him. And he'd never had a number one record up until She's a Lady. So I went over to England and did the show and I was flying home in TWA and uh, I started writing an idea down the back of a menu, TWA uh, menu. And I had it formulated. And then once I got home, got the demo done for him. Uh, I sent it over, and uh, they went in, did it, and there you have it. Do you still have the TWA menu? No. <laughs> I have a box of like all the, That's if I ever had like a scribble of a song that worked, yeah. like I have a box of Yeah, that. I got books and papers, I got a ton of stuff. Just a few yeah, of those bite, are actually you know? pretty, some of, some of them are actually really 
pretty crazy how right. significant they ended up being for me. Where it's just like, just the thought process during that one day yeah. and how illegible it is. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're trying to write it fast enough so you don't forget it. Isn't that the truth? You know, you know, you obviously started writing for other people, but then then you come back as an artist. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, being an artist sucks. Because I was told you need to come back. <laughs> I hadn't had any hits. Um, you know, and, and by uh, this point, you start. You know, you're now in your like late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, I'm. Uh, let me see. My way, I was twenty five. That's late sixties. So I'm late twenties, and um, you know, I'm hearing. You know, why aren't you making records? And you know, uh, you haven't had a hit in a while. You know, that kind of grates on you a little bit. And um, I said, okay, I'm going to, you know, and everything's timing in our business. You really have to respect the fact timing really plays. And um, I started writing again for myself. And, uh, and I, you know, I've always read a lot. I'm a big, big reader, you know, four or five hours a day. I just, I learn a lot from all that stuff. It's like I tell my son, if you can just read a lot, you don't have to go to school anymore, frankly. So um, I started with, um, a song, Do I Love You in Jubilation. I went to Buddha Records for Neil Bogart, who was the hot guy right back then. And he got a hold of me and said, you can have hits again. So I started with Do I Love You, Jubilation, made a little noise, and I started getting into the flow again. And it it wound up to where I was up in Tahoe, and I, I was at a hotel there, and I had him put a piano in there, and I just started writing again for me. And the first was having my baby and one man, woman, sleep alone, all that stuff. And then I went to United Artists, from from Neil's place. And um, they said, yeah, what do you want to do? I said, well, I've got these songs, but I want to go to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I want to oh, get out cool. of this, I want to get out of this L.A. vibe, you know. So I hooked up with this guy, Rick Hall. And I go down to Muscle Shoals and great. And the, the vibe out of those musicians and the lifestyle is great. You know, you're in the motel and you're writing and you go and eat some chicken and then you go in the studio and you don't have all that other stuff uh, taking your mind off it. And uh, it was a great, great experience for me. And I, I cut some those hits with the Muscle Shoals band. It's, it's interesting. One of the things I've learned from doing this podcast is yeah. you, know, you end up condensing somebody's life's work in an hour, an hour and a half. And you look at, you look at somebody's discography and you see two years of you know, lots of hits, in two years of nothing, mm-hmm. and what you don't realize when you just when you look at it, you don't recognize that what's happening in the years that where nothing's happening is all the preparation for the years that things are happening. And the years that things are happening, you're too busy those years to actually write the thing that's going to happen next. So you end up with these valleys, and they're they're they sort of is the opposite of the years that you actually work. You know, right, when right. it looks like when it looks like there's not as much happening, that's when all the work is happening. All the exactly. grinding, all the recording, all the prep, all that stuff is happening during that's those right. what seem like lulls to everyone else. And they're all like, why aren't you writing hits anymore? Like, yeah. I am. I'm just haven't released it yet. That's you right. know? And you can't. You know, the other thing was you, as as everything kind of Got into the new form, if you will. You didn't need to do three albums a year anymore. So you were you were sitting there preparing for what the next one would be because it was impossible for everybody to be on the charts. It was just impossible. 
Um, was it just that there was an abundance of people who wanted to do it, and so because well, that, it got so I, crowded that I was like, why are we releasing three albums a well, year? Well, that and the music was changing, and the demand was different. It went to folk, and then it went to this, then it went to that, then it went to disco, and there was just so much you could put in that hole in terms of radio and you know what was happening then and at that moment. So you'd have to re-gear because there was just so much room to get on radio back then. I mean, your your music evolved a lot. If you listen through, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, like they they it evolves with what's popular sonically. But your writing doesn't feel like you were chasing those genres. It felt like the recordings of them became sonically more relevant for their times, but it, it never felt. Like you were trying to do like a folk music thing. It didn't no, feel like never. It. Darren doing tried like, it, you know, and I said, Bobby, wrong move. What did he say? What did he say after well, he, he said that? Well, he had the Gene Jack and the guitar. He said, no, man, I'm going to do what the fuck I want. And he was marching and civil rights. I mean, all good stuff yeah. that way. But artistically, you know, I said, Bobby, that's not who you are. And then they, they don't want to hear that from you. And, you know, right near the end of his life, because he knew he was dying, you know, he went back to the tuxedo in the Vegas and he had, you know... Some relevance to it. The the only, you know, I started writing with a lot of people because I wanted that experience, and the only, you know, the real challenge in a way, and apropos of what you said, was trying to take Michael Jackson into a different vibe because I wasn't yeah. really working with a musician per se. I mean, his genius was all just on his brain, and he would ooh on ah, e e e, and all the stuff would come out, and you'd try to stay with it. So he wasn't really a keyboard player, and that was my biggest challenge in trying to keep him in something different but what I was about and not chasing it. How did you meet Michael Jackson? I knew Michael Jackson and his family for years. They would come to Vegas and see my show and they'd see Sinatra and, you know, the father was kind of driving it all and uh, they were a show business family and he had them at a very young age, this is what you're doing. Thus they wanted to go and learn from the best or what was happening. So I knew them from, you know, visiting me backstage, et cetera. And then um, I was doing my album with my first Sony deal, and it was a duets album. And I was writing, I had, you know, Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins and Foster. Yeah, Peter Cetera was Cetera, everybody so was sick. on it. I mean, and Chicago, I had a couple... Chicago of, kid, like, yeah. you know, anyway, sorry. Cetera, great, so, Chicago, so it's a great band, you know, yeah. they're a great band, and Cetera's great. So... Um, I got a call from this press agent that knew Michael and, you know, I started to, you know, hang with them and, you know, me and Michael McDonald and Bacharach and uh, we'd hang with this this guy that was his, uh, David, I forget his last name at this point. And um, he said, Michael would like to write with you for your album. I said, great. So Thriller hadn't hit yet. But we all knew as music people that any moment it was going to, you just know someone's going to take off. So he came up to my house, had a studio, built my home up in Carmel, and I was putting my kids in school, and I was living up there and recording up there, and he came up and lived with me up at my guest house, and we hung and hung and hung, and we just started writing together. And um, it was the most different experience I've ever had writing with anybody. But I knew that, uh, that he was going to hit big time. The... You know, in our business, you really start finding out what people are about based on things that happen to them and who's a mensch, as they say in the business, who isn't. And he stole the tapes. 
because we were coming down here to finish them at a uh, studio down here. And he went and stole the tapes. He didn't want to finish the project. And uh, I said, what? <laughs> I've got to deliver this album. He said, well, I got the tapes and that's it. So I wound up in uh, his, his new lawyer then was John Branca and Ziffrin, who were my lawyers. And he had just started with them. And uh, I said, hey, guys, what's going on here? Well, you know, Michael, blah, blah. I said, but I got a contract. I said, look at the contract. And they said, well, you know, we can't find it. We don't have the contract. I said, you oh. wrote the contract. Didn't they write the contract? Yes, yes. I said, look at the contract. That was number 37 in the file. So they really played hardball, and I knew walking out that we had a problem. The reason I'm giving you this, you know, background is because it shows you what karma does. So I said, look, I'm going to litigate, and I don't like litigating. It takes your, you know, your eye off the ball. I said, this is bullshit, what you guys are doing. Now, Thriller's coming out, and it's making all kinds of noise. And we get to the point where they realize they don't want to get in this litigation, and they send me back my multi-tracks. Okay. Years go by. You know the Michael story. Great artist, great influence. We'll leave the other shit aside. Um, I get a call from uh, Harvey Levin at TMZ, and he said, uh, there's this big record coming out, and it's called This Is It, and uh, the tour, and blah, 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 but we hear that you wrote it, and, and not Michael. I said, that line, I don't know any song called This Is It. He said, well, I'm going to send it to you. And he sends, sends it over, and my first line of the song was, uh, this is it. Here I stand. But the title is called I Never Heard. I never heard a single word about you. They changed the title. They go into his room and they find these tapes thinking it was new. The estate and the lawyers. They changed this title, This Is It. My old title, which I copyright, was called I Never Heard. As soon as I hear the song, I go, that's it. That's never heard, right? So... They they sweetened up the uh, the the multis that he copied, which I didn't know, and you know the rest of the story. So it was like that afternoon. It was, hey guys, it's me again, the lawyers, and you got four hours to settle it. I want fifty percent of everything, or we're going to court. And you got no tour, blah blah blah, and we settled it. Man, if if you read the the Quincy Jones interview about. Michael Jackson that came out maybe two years ago, three yeah. years ago on Vulture. It all just reflects that. Oh, they that end, other side. They didn't end well at all. When Quincy won that lawsuit. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like all the things where he's just like, you know, Michael stole this, Michael yeah. stole that, Michael copied that, and you're just like, man, Q. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know why I call them Q. Like I'm friends with them. But. Right. I love Q. I go way back with them, and I I was on the back of the big Leslie Gore hit. It's my party. I wrote the other side, Danny, which did pretty good. But I go way back with Q. Q's great. Crazy. I mean, he's a great influence, great musician. Right. And well, the three of us can go have some cocktails. Yeah, we'll treat. do that. And then, just to finish the sure. story, I get a call from, um, let's just say, the estate. And um, and they said, well, thank you for settling. And we found some other stuff. And, you know, your stuff was the most different and the best. He said, we got this other song. Let me play it for you. And then I hear, baby, 
Love never felt so good. And I doubt that it... And I said to the guy, I said, I wrote that too. You got, the, you got that? He said, you wrote that too? I said, yes. I said, what are you going to do with it? So that came out later with uh, when L.A. Reid called me. And they put Justin Bieber on it. So I had the second record. And the last one is the one I just had with Drake. Don't Matter to Me, which is on Drake's Scorpion album. Did you meet Drake? Oh, yeah, he came to my house. He heard about the track, right? And somebody had played it to him. And uh, I get the call, and he says, come to your house, blah, blah, blah. So the SUVs, they're all piling in my house over at uh, where I was living. And, uh, of course, my kid knows what's coming, so I got a house full of kids, and Drake walks in, and he's just as nice as can be, and sits down, and I want to do this track, and uh, I want to use your your track. And I said, well, you got to break the code. What you, what's going with it? I got to hear what you're going to marry it up to. So, so we make a deal, and uh, he he wanted to do it, and uh, you know, I think they nailed it. They uh, recorded up in Toronto, and uh, it was a pretty good record. There are a few things that, that I want to go back to. One is why is it if you're going to bring up Drake, mm. Justin Bieber, mm. you know, you know, some of these classics like Buble, yeah. Celine Dion. Yeah, the the list of Canadian artists that come in and own their lane in pop music. The weekend, so many of these incredible Canadian artists. Why? Why not? It it just seems like such a disproportionate amount of people. What's wrong with us up here? I don't know. I mean, I I would assume that there you has think to it's be out of proportion. Well, I, I think about how many people are that. Those are the tops. We only send the best. We don't fuck around. I mean, it's I mean, insane. You guys have all this bullshit, and they're not this thing. I'm not going to go further with that. But when we get in it, we say we're sending you our best shit. You know, you got to remember, we lived under the shadow of this country. If you were from Canada, nobody looked at you. Nobody cared. When I came down, there's no Canadian artists, all in Nashville and New York. So nobody really cared about Canadians, you know? But we were not unlike the British when I lived in England. You know, they would sit there and listen to all this shit. We dominated their charts. And meanwhile, they were nailing it, you know, Clapton. And you listen to all the great artists that are there. They were doing Chuck and they were doing Buddy and they were doing, and they made it better. And they're, they're, they're like thousands of miles away. So we're up in this shadow. Nobody's paying attention to us, right? But we're not stupid, you know. We're looking at it, you know, as a craft. We're looking at it as the potential and everything in it. And thus our directors know how to make movies, and that starts. Then the influx of all these artists. But we always realize we have to be as good or better as Americans. We learned our shit better. Because we knew I mean, we wouldn't make it otherwise. Even right now, the biggest producers, the Frank Deuce circuit, it, yeah. it just... The amount of Canadians that are that dominate American yeah. radio yeah. is, but you know, you, you know what it is. The world is split up in three breadbaskets. Whether you're politics, financial, we have to realize that from Canada down is one breadbasket, South America. Then you got Europe and all of that that's happening, and then you got China that rules. And and those are the forces. I mean, to, to where it's, you know, when you say Canada and U.S., we all speak the same language. Yeah, no, it's, We're all influenced on each other. You know, it, what I've always said is, let's just become a part of the U.S. 
It's the same. What's the fucking difference? But, I mean, the advantage you get if you're Canadian is that you have, you know, what is it, 40% of radio has to be Canadian yeah, artists. Local, you know, there's the, there's a lot of local content. So, yes, yes. you know, that's how Carly Rae really gets her start is because of yeah. the, the real push from Canadian radio, Correct. which, of course, Bieber hears when he's at home. And it's like yeah. this, you know. So there's, there's a lot of... Canadian pride that if if we in our country actually invested in the next generation the way Canadians do in theirs or South Koreans do in theirs, maybe we'd actually have you know a shot at our next generation. I mean, look at Korea. Now, granted, yeah. our bands don't want to dance like that anymore. So these guys are like dancing them off the stage. They're amazing, yeah. right? And then yeah. another language. But you know, we don't want to do that. But you know, years ago, even when I was touring in Japan and in Asia, you know, they would admit to me, the Japanese, you know, we can do anything. We can make anything. We can baseball, we can we can go. the only thing we can't do are your movies and your music. They said there's no way we can do it. And now look what's happening with Korea. Look what look what's gonna come out of China. I mean, there's shit going on out there. You know, on all levels, that is going to just change the landscape. Yeah, it'll go. I mean, now all the deals for all the DSPs, Spotify and whatnot, is all based in India. You know, continuing to move westward, right. and this will get real dorky. But the history of music has moved west from mm-hmm. you know mid eighteen hundreds when you go through Vienna, through you know Germany, through. France through UK to right. New York to LA and now to Korea and it, it will continue to it's the somehow music art seems to move west and it yeah. has for 250 yeah. years so and financially you know that what's called the silk highway from China they've got trains going right across through Afghanistan and Bukhtustan and all those places the wealth and the stream yeah. from that Silk Highway is is going to take over. I mean, they'll surpass us in 15 years financially. The mob. Mm. What did you owe them? <laughs> like when I mean, it's always like it's always like, "Ah, oh, no, we were good. We were with the mob." How did they, you know, it I can't understand it coming I I understand Pale and the music industry and and the the a lot of the history, but somehow uh the idea that the mob really helped push the music industry and the Rat Pack and you guys along. What does that mean when you say, oh, yeah, the mob? Who are the mob? Okay. Is it, I don't want you to get shot or something. No, so like, no, no. I've got, listen, I'm not owned by anybody. I was never owned by anybody. It was a business. And everything that I did in my business and all of the people you hear about and the pioneers, the mob controlled. Now that means the Jews and the Italians. You had Meyer Lansky in Florida, yeah. smart guy. You had the mob out of Cleveland and Chicago. And it's a great country we have. And what you have is, you know, from when everybody emigrated here in this, what is not a homogenous society, you had the Jews and the Italians and the Irish working their asses off and working their way up. But in that whole process, you had, you know, the mafia that was born out of, you know, Sicily over to New York. And it's just a bunch of guys that are in business and they did business differently. Now, it even got into government. I mean, don't kid yourself. However you want to paint the word mob or mafia or whatever you want, it's in politics then. It's in politics today. It's in business today. It's in corporations today. So anyway, you color it. 
it's still a form of a mafia relationship type of vibe that happens. Back then, you you couldn't avoid working for them. Now, did that mean a guy showed up and said, you know, kid, you're going to give us 50% of your money, and if you don't do this? No. You knew to keep your nose clean. You knew to just listen. How do you do, sir? These guys were gentlemen. They were soft-spoken. They wore shortened ties. My godfather was a guy called Carl Cohen, and Carl was, you know, out of Cleveland. He took me under his wing. He protected me in the sense nobody ever would mess with me. And Carl was the guy. And he worked for this network of guys that controlled the music and the clubs and the booze, and that's America. That's America. Now, if anybody stepped out of line, not unlike governments who do it in a deceitful way, maybe, or other fractions, they would just blatantly go out and you're dead. You just don't cross them. And it was usually with their own. Not unlike today, where you've got gangs and all that other stuff, where innocent people are getting nailed and what have you, and didn't, don't have the intellect that they had back then, where they ran this part of the business. They were acknowledged for running it. And when it got out of line a little bit, the government would step in, but there was always something behind that. So that when they got too big in Vegas, it was a government move to bring Hughes in, to buy them out. But don't kid yourself. You know, Hughes was there, he bought everything, but who still ran it? The boys. They still, the money was still flowing over there. It was going to Florida. It was, and you know, everyone is now privy today via books and media and what have you, what that machine was. Now, it's changed today. It's not like it was. Because the moment people started ratting out and things kind of changed and guys went away, it kind of went underground a little to where today you've got the Russians and the Colombians and the Mexicans. What do you want to call them? So if you're talking in, in the sense of the way they conduct themselves, that hasn't really changed. I mean, back then it was... A lot cleaner than stuff I read about today with saws and uh, ripping off limbs. And it's out there. Yeah, you know, that's crazy. It's just totally out there. So we worked for them. They were good to us. Uh, we had a good working relationship. You'd shake their hand. You know, got business guys today, even if you've got a contract, they're going to fuck you. Not back then. You know, you, 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 your word was something and you shook a guy's hand yeah. and you worked for those guys and that was it. And everybody knew it. End of story. All right, we're going to this next segment of five for five. I'm going to name five things, and you can just tell me, you know, sort of what comes off the top of your head. Mm. Okay, so let's start with Johnny Carson. Smart guy, the best at what he did, um, no matter who followed him. Somewhat complex. Um, loved his booze. <laughs> big drinker. What was his what was his drink? Oh, you name it. I mean big hard liquor. Um comes to my mind uh you know when I knew Sinatra and Jilly who was Sinatra's sidekick. Um we'd go to Jilly's bar restaurant in New York. Carson really loved Sinatra. Sinatra really like a lot of people just if they he didn't like you you never got near him. Thus uh Johnny after work would come to uh, Jilly's club, and he'd be blitzed. And he played drums. He was a drummer. He loved playing drums. Johnny he, Carson? Yeah. And he had drums at home, and he'd come and play drums at uh, Jilly's bar, and he was like, you know. One night he comes in really blitzed, and he started to uh, come on to these girls at the bar. And uh, 
you have to realize that back then, the, the mob guys, Friday night was for the mistresses and then the side dishes and then the wife on Saturday night. So they'd go out with the wives on Saturday, but the side dishes, the girlfriends, they were Friday night. So he messed with the wrong girls because it's Friday night and it's the girlfriends and these guys took it a lot seriously than the wives. So they grabbed them, they threw them down a flight of small stairs in Jilly's and they started beating up on them till somebody yelled, Jilly, they're gonna kill Johnny Carson. So he went down and broke it up. So the booze side of his life was real. Um, you know, some people are happy, some are quiet. He just went the other way. But not to take anything away from the brilliance of the man. He was very well read, very smart. And as I said, he was the best at what he did. Uh, but that's something that just stood out because I was young again and he was just doing his thing and I'd come off of the, you know, the, the theme with him, which was supposed to last a year, and then became the longest running uh, theme. So I had an alliance in a sense with him, but never professed to say that I knew him really well. But that's the side of Johnny along with, um, you know, the real good side of the ledger of his contribution and, and a pioneer was that side of him. There was a dark side. Don Costa, one of the greatest A&R men ever. Don Costa is like all the unsung heroes. And what I learned from Sinatra and those guys early is you'd better have some great arrangers around you. And what most people don't realize, and some of us that you know are humbled by what we do but are aware of the facts, to sit down and come from that school where a guy can sit down with a score and put the strings and the voicing, that ain't easy to do great. Because, you know, good is the enemy of great. Costa was one of those great guys that could voice strings they learned from Robert Farnham. But, you know, the guys like Quincy and Costa, Costa was the master of being a producer, uh, an arranger, and a great, great guy. And, and the reason I'm sitting here with you, he saw this young kid and really taught me a great deal. But the way he used to voice and write those arrangements was brilliant. And I tell anyone, go get Sinatra and strings and listen to some great string writing. The Rat Pack. Uh, the Rat Pack, um, a very important part of Americana in this country in terms of how an entertainment entity like them could influence so much that these guys could get together, uh, build pretty much the foundation of a city to what it is today when it really failed and a guy got shot for failing, Bugsy Siegel, who was a little ahead of his time. The Rat Pack really put their stamp on the Great American Songbook and what it was like to be an entertainer and learn your craft and they were the model for all of us. And when they got up on stage, it was like going to college. It was amazing because we, again, didn't live in this media-driven society where everything that you did was out there a second later. Thus, they just behaved the way that they wanted. So you're sitting there one day and they're doing their thing, and then John Kennedy's arriving and then he's hanging out and I won't go into description what everybody was doing, but there's Kennedy showing up, every movie star showing up, all because of these guys the Rat Pack in Vegas, where it was the thing to do, the place to go. Your kids. My kids, um, the most important part of my life. I think that what you hopefully learn 
with success or without it as a human being, that if you're lucky enough to marry well, um, that it's very important to have a family. Uh, my kids are great kids. Uh, I'm very proud of all of them and nine grandchildren. And they're the biggest and important component in my life today are my family and my kids. Finally, your parents. My parents, um, they were good people. Uh, you know, living and hearing today all the, the negative and unfortunate dynamics that have occurred in families and parents and et cetera. Um, I had two great parents. Uh, my dad was very hardworking. Uh, my mom was a great lady. Um, I knew she was dying and she became, um, you know, a very important part of my life because she was the one that believed in me. She was the one that, you know, would work every day, but come home and what do you need? You know, here, go buy some music sheets, go buy some records. So both my parents were there for me. Um, they opened that door and allowed me to pursue uh, the dream that I had, that they shared with me. Uh, they're, I look back at them and respect them. Uh, even though they're not here, I respect them in memory uh, for the fact that uh, they never hurt me. And uh, and that they were there for me, especially my mom. You know, she was that was taken away from me when I was eighteen years old. My first royalty check, I bought her a home because we didn't we weren't rich people, and moved her to New Jersey. I bought her a home, and that's where she died. But I've got great great memories of great parents. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, we we've been fortunate enough to talk to a lot of venerable writers and people who've been through different eras of the music industry and one of the things that we talk a lot about is the value of patience and your career started off going 100 miles an hour and you managed to not run out of gas and I don't know how many people in the business right now, I said this earlier, can relate to the path you've taken because you were so young when you started but you achieved such a high level of output and artwork the whole time and you know as a as a writer and as you know somebody who's in the circuit right now and going through it you know it hasn't changed all that much and it, yet it's changed in every way but so much of the the stories that you talk about seem like something that you could have just you could have just had that conversation yesterday with I mean you did with Drake. It's not that it's not that different now than than it than it was, but you know, whatever we're doing now is a result of how your generation, you know, opened certain doors and the idea of learning, yeah, well, own your masters, own your publishing. If you can get to that point, absolutely you should. You know, to be entrepreneurial, to be a good songwriter is to be a good entrepreneur. There are a lot of good melody writers and good lyric writers, but a lot of them are really bad entrepreneurs and they disappear just because they can't figure out the business. So for you to have led the way that early and to introduce other artists and other writers into that, I mean, kudos to you. It's it's I, I appreciate your story. I appreciate your work. And, and again, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. You know, I think that um, 
you know, I, I'm very close to a guy named Michael Bublé, who, you know, opened that door for him and produced yeah. and uh, <laughs> with David, and, and I talk to him all the time. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I like to give back and share, and I've done it from as far back as David Clayton Thomas to John Prine and on and on. Yeah. But all I tell them is that, uh, you know, don't blow this, and, uh, uh, you know, you need the patience, and you got to learn to fail a little bit, and don't get... Uh, don't think it's the end of the world when there's a dip, you know, because you just, you've got to find yourself and have some character, some backbone. Like it was a big problem trying to teach Presley that because I would sit with him and, you know, he unfortunately passed very young. And I used to say to him, I'd say, Elvis, you're Elvis Presley, man. It's okay. You know, you're getting older. We're all, you're not going to beat that. But just have some patience with it and sit down and remember you're respected out there and you can still do it. But... You know, it doesn't have to last forever. I don't ever look at it like that. I look at it like, you know, there's some great books that, that you'll read where, the, where they've, the writer's written one or two books and he's written out. That's it. He doesn't have to write 50. And it's the same in our business. You know, you can't, just because you, you, you get lucky or you've really got something and, you know, in an environment today where, unfortunately, it's not all about good music anymore. You know, you, you go in and it's... There's another way that they're making the music, and I won't get into that, but the inevitability of change is, is there. But you doesn't mean that you're going to be around all that long. You know, it's just something that you've got to prepare for the downside. You know, you've got to stay in cash flow in today's business because the day may come where it's going to end, and that's, that's your ride, man. It's like Elton, you know, he's had his ride. Great writer, both of them, and you know, I go way back to Dick James and where they started. But you know, you look at today, the big payoff is all those big acts that are doing all the business. They don't necessarily have hits anymore because their body of work is so strong. You know, the guys and the women and the guys that are putting out records today, they're, and we won't name them, they're stiffing. They open with something that's passe and they do 50,000. Nobody cares. So it's, it's not trying to change and be what everyone else is is to realize whatever the hell you got write it out and that's all that i've tried to do is look at it write it out and you know if there's asses in the seats like i'm going on you know tour of europe and my tour ends next march you know do the business right now my people follow me and i know what i have to do to please them but for anyone else i'm giving advice to is used to be be an accountant Learn your business, <laughs> yeah. you know, learn, yeah. you, you do that because you're going to wake up one day and somebody's stolen it from you. And if you really read, you know, look at it all historically, everybody got screwed. You know, all of us got screwed. I got screwed, you know, and you just have to apply yourself and uh, and do it. And, you know, Michael's a great example. I, I think Bublé's, you know, doing the best that he can. He's doing very well. And I love that project because it was about the American songbook, you know, the world that I came from. To He was the guy to do it. So find that young guy and, you know, went in the studio with him and Foster and he listened and he learned. And then my rap with him today is, hey, it's not going to be stadiums, you know. Get ready. Go and sign now at Caesars and get your Vegas thing because in <laughs> five years you're going to be. And, you know, the hypocrisy of all of that elongating my adieu to you and goodbye, is, you know, I worked Vegas and I stayed true to that. And everybody used to, you know, a lot of the acts, you know, oh, we'd never work Vegas. Oh, we don't want that stigma. Well, look at these hypocrites. They're all winding up with residencies. They're all, oh, we love Vegas. Why? Because it's all about the money. 
Everything in life is all about, not money, all about the money. So they sit there, their profit margins go up, they're not on the road out doing each other, and they're now playing Vegas. It's the thing to do. Why? It's all about the money. <laughs> but thank you for, uh, I really enjoyed this yeah. a great deal. Smart dude, and they were really uh, good questions. Thanks we'll, for having me. We'll have cocktails with Quincy soon. Well, if we can get him out of the house, he gets up <laughs> around 4 or 5 in the afternoon. Perfect. <laughs> All right, thanks. Hey, thank you, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golden. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.